From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Back in the late 1990s, the journalist Frank Raisin observed that while most popular toys retain their hold on children's imaginations for just a few years, Barbie has been popular for generations. And at that time, it showed no signs of giving up that popularity. And that was a quarter of a century ago. And sure enough, in 2022, the maker of the iconic plastic doll reported $1.5 billion in brand-wide global sales. And the Barbie brand is going to do even better than that this year, thanks to the Barbie movie, which is the top-grossing movie of the year and already one of the top 20 grossing movies of all time. None of this makes Barbie a good movie. Good is subjective after all. But it does virtually guarantee that a doll that first hit store shelves in 1959 will continue to remain relevant for many years to come. And the scholar Donna Roberts says this makes sense because... Barbie isn't simply a toy. She's an icon whose long-term success can be attributed to the fact that she keeps evolving, not just in the fashions she wears, but in the society she represents. Roberts is the Associate Dean for Faculty and a professor in the College of Arts and Sciences at Embry-Riddle University, and she published an article about the marketing of Barbie across the generations in the Journal of Applied Business and Economics in 2020. That was right around the time that the initial script for the Barbie movie was being written, and right before Greta Gerwig was named as the director. Donna Roberts, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here and talk about one of my favorite subjects. Donna, you are a pretty eclectic scholar. Your work includes evaluations of the impacts of different forms of learning and the ways in which dystopian fiction impacts human psychology and the impacts of different customer service strategies in the airline industry. You even once tried to take on the question of why evil exists. So naturally, Donna, I need to know about your childhood. (laughs) Sure. Well, it's true. I do have very varied interests. They all do sort of center around psychology and the application of psychology. And I love taking a look at psychological theory and how it applies in everyday life, how we see it manifest in every different venue. As far as my childhood, born and raised in upstate New York in a lovely little town called Canandaigua, which is a Native American for the chosen spot. And it was a pretty idyllic place to grow up. You literally grew up in the chosen spot. Yeah, that's pretty special. But I'll tell you, Canandaigua was sure hard to learn to spell as a as a grade schooler. <laughs> I'll bet it was. Did did this sort of lust for choosing different things out of the world and exploring them and trying to understand them did that come from your upbringing? Yeah, I think that um, natural curiosity was always uh, always encouraged uh, in my childhood. And so you know how kids are always asking questions. I was encouraged to, to continually ask questions and then to go out and try to find those answers. So um, I, I would say that I had a lot of exposure to a lot of books I loved reading as a child. And so um, I remember 
you know, sitting in front of my grandmother's bookshelf with back in the day when there were, you know, hard, hardback um, encyclopedias and just looking at those and thinking, oh, I just wish I knew everything that was in these volumes and uh, probably not going to get there for sure. But it, it is it has been an adventure exploring particularly the human condition in so many different ways. I think those encyclopedias were so fantastic. Did you have the blue ones, the red ones, or the black ones? Do you remember? The red ones. The red ones with the gold letters on the binding? Yep. Oh, those were Absolutely. good. <laughs> Did, in addition to uh, spending hours upon hours, I'm sure, leaping through this huge volume of books, did you play with Barbies as a child? Oh, my goodness, yes. Barbies were the toy of my childhood. Uh, my friends and I, I think that's what we did in terms of play for a decade. And and how did you play with Barbie? Because everybody plays with dolls in a different way. Do you remember kind of what your favorite Barbie game was? So just really uh, the reenactment of kind of everyday stuff. And the part of Barbie is the Barbie brand and all of the accessories that come along with that. You know, the dream house, the camper, the pool, uh, all of those things. So it was always exciting in my group of uh, friends uh, when one of us would get one of the new uh, pieces, one of the new accessories and, and share that. So tell me, what was happening around the late 2010s that made you think, you know what, after all of these years, I want to I want to write about Barbie. So one of the things I've been fascinated with is what becomes icon in our culture? What, what drives popular psychology? Uh, and what, um, what sticks in our minds as icons and important milestones for us? So Barbie always was, certainly is in my childhood. Um, but also I fall into that um, group, the nostalgic group. Uh, you know, I still have my Barbies. Um, I still have a couple of the ones that are special editions and things like that. And I just, um, I noticed that, you know, this is something that is something that hits the, the, the pulse of a generation or generations in different ways. And so all that made me want to take a look at at Barbie and, and also fascinated by what you kind of mentioned in the introduction, the idea that um, it's such a permanent, long-lasting kind of icon. Again, meaning different things to different people in different times and generations, but still something that has hit the pulse for a very long time. In this piece, you decided to focus on the ways in which Mattel has evolved in its making and marketing of this doll over time. And one of the things that really jumped out at me is that Mattel seems to have discovered that there are different sorts of, I guess you might call them pressure release valves that this company can turn to when Barbie sales sink or it runs into controversy because it's not just one thing. It can change the way Barbie looks. It can change the characters around her. It can change what she does. It can frame the way children and their parents interact with her in the commercials that they run, promoting her sales. So I was thinking maybe you could touch on some of those. And I think maybe one of the most obvious is that from very early on, 
a lot of the criticism around Barbie was that she was too much of a sex symbol. And so one of the very first things Mattel did to respond to societal concerns about this doll and what she meant is they introduced this doll called Midge. Can you talk about Midge and what Mattel was trying to do with her? Sure. So Mattel, I think overall, has been very responsive to the market and very smart about trying to figure out what um, what both children and their parents are are looking for in in this product, in this doll. And yeah, Barbie came out um, and was very successful. Um, but any company who knows anything about moving forward knows that you don't sit on your laurels. And so they did. They came out with first Barbie in 1959 um, and then Ken uh, and short after. But again, he took kind of a backseat. Absolutely. But Midge was Midge came out in 1963 as kind of a tomboy friend. And exactly as you describe, um, there was controversy right from the start. And because Barbie was a, a very new product back then, there was children um, little girls were playing with baby dolls in sort of a mothering kind of um, play. And then the only sort of adult doll that they had could have any interaction with at the time was paper dolls. And so that's when when Barbie came on the market, she really represented something new and different. And yeah, there there was criticism right from the start about her her figure being too feminine or too sexy. And so Midge came along as her kind of tomboy friend to sort of ease that a little bit. So they don't change Barbie, but they change this thing around her and they kind of create this outlet for parents who are concerned or maybe little girls who weren't all that interested in fashion and wanted to be more tomboyish. That's right. That's right. And suddenly you've created yet another piece, a more holistic kind of um, environment, a more holistic setup that children now can more relate to. Okay, so there's Barbie and then there's a boy and then there's uh, a friend. And so now we've got relationships that we can play out here. And then to that end, a few years later, we get Francie and then Christy. These are the first black Barbie dolls. And again, Barbie herself doesn't change, but she surrounds herself with friends who are a better representation of a more diverse society. That's right. Absolutely. And again, Mattel has been um, very adept at sort of, you know, trying something new, feeling it out, seeing if it works or not, responding to um market pressures, responding to criticisms. And so um, when Francie came out in 1967, she was the first African-American doll. And she was criticized, that, that doll was criticized because uh, of not having, I mean, it was just kind of Barbie with the dark skin tone. It didn't have the classic. Right. I've heard, I've heard, Francie referred to as Barbie in blackface. It was just basically, it was all of Barbie's figure. Well, it was actually the same mold, but just a different color. That's right. It was. And so, um, and so they kind of stopped uh, making Francie and later responded uh, with um, Christy. They also did do a focus group at one point where they took into consideration the features and made new molds and tried to again, always respond to, they were very smart about picking and choosing what to respond to uh, in terms of how their product was received. In the 1970s, Barbie 
gets athletic in association with the Olympics. And I think this is maybe not coincidental that this happens when two things are going on in society. One is that there is greater TV attention given to the Olympics and there are more TVs and more households so people can watch them. And then also this is right after Title IX is enacted by Congress, which is enforcing greater equality and sports opportunity in public schools. So here we have this thing again where Mattel through Barbie is responding to our changing society. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. With the Winter Olympics in 75, we suddenly had swimmer Barbie and skater Barbie and skier Barbie. And, you know, there's been sort of a, a duality in response to, to Barbie. One being that criticisms about certain, you know, body image or the idea, you know, the, the, uh, blonde, blue-eyed image. Um, but the other side of that was that she's been heralded for being progressive in the sense that showing children, you can be anything, you can be all these things, much more before that was part of the social dialogue. Mm, yeah. And to that end, in the 1980s and 90s, Barbie starts getting really career-oriented, up till that point, not all, but most of her jobs had been in traditionally women-dominated careers. She was a teacher and a babysitter and a nurse. But then, you know, she gets to be a veterinarian and then an ambassador and a police officer and in 1992, a presidential candidate. That's right. Also, don't forget an astronaut. And an astronaut. Well, that one, that's interesting because that happens in 1965. That was That's Barbie's sort of very first non-traditionally women-oriented career. Mm -hmm. And then they came out again in 86 with an astronaut Barbie. Uh, right around the time that we've got Sally Ride and, That's and right. the American astronauts going to space. Yeah. So then sales start declining in the 1990s. And this is when Mattel finally makes some pretty serious changes to Barbie's body dimensions, which were increasingly being criticized for being well, like completely unrealistic, right? Like I think I think you wrote that there are very few women who actually look like this, if any at all in the world, right? The body image one, yeah, that was had been in the dialogue for a long time. And um it came it festered up in the mid 90s a bit with parents as well. Uh, there was an article in the International Journal of Eating Disorders in 95 where they kind of did the math with respect to Barbie's body proportions. And it, it wasn't favorable, obviously. It was, you know, an actual woman um, would have to be 5'9 with a 39-inch bust, an 18-inch waist, 33-inch hips, and size 3 feet. So, um, oh, dear God. Yeah, not going to work for most people. But the argument, so so this panicked a lot of parents, um, a lot of mothers in, in terms of, you know, what what image, what is this doing to our daughters? What what is, How is this influencing body image? And there were other studies that came out that questioned, um, you know, children about um, their preferences for, if they were exposed to Barbies, what their preferences for and things like that. Um, so... And, and so that controversy um, flared up for sure. And at this point, Mattel did something pretty pretty genius, I think. They kept in the nostalgia of the traditional Barbies. They kept that going on because by this point they had um, 
a pretty strong collector audience as well. You know, so they did a holiday Barbie and they did celebrity Barbies and all of those special editions, limited editions. But they also did pivot, as you mentioned, in terms of starting to think about um, other body types and responding to a declining market. I just think this is so fascinating because this really shows the duality of Barbie that, you know, here's this doll that had encouraged these adult women to think about themselves as more than being just their bodies and to give them, you know, heroic ideas and ideas about like becoming a veterinarian or an astronaut or police officer. But then also as these women grew up into their adult selves and had children, they looked at Barbie through the lens of being successful women who were more than just their bodies and went, oh gosh, this is problematic. Yes, absolutely. And I think the research panicked them a bit when, when you know, when you hear those kind of proportions um, and, and the, that whole idea of children's self-esteem was re- very big in, in the psychology of child rearing and, and things like that. So, you know, it, um, some studies say as many as 82% of the women think that Barbie portrays an unrealistic body image. And that's, that's probably very valid with respect to those numbers. But the next step, the next jump you have to think about is, you know, does that translate into a real internalization of I need to look like that? And so that's where the controversy comes in. Whereas, you know, it's kind of like the whole video game controversy, does watching, you know, playing violent video games make children violent? The whole controversy around, you know, Wile E. Coyote in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, is is that going to make children kind of go out there and, and try all those things that should be labeled do not try at home. It's, it's of the same genre as that. How much are children going to internalize that image into a, I should be like that, I'm not like that, therefore I'm less than? The interesting thing I keep seeing is that Mattel kept changing Barbie, but it wasn't very often that these changes were ahead of what actual women were already doing. So there's an astronaut Barbie in 1965, but this comes two years after Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space. And there was a presidential candidate Barbie in 1992, but that's a long time after uh, Shirley Chisholm broke that barrier in a major party's nomination process. And it was a decade after Geraldine Ferrero was on the presidential ticket for the Democrats. Is it safe to say that Mattel has found this sort of sweet spot that might be a little ahead of what some people are ready for, but is a little behind what women are actually already doing? Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. They, What Mattel did is you know, not bring a new idea, as you just gave us great examples for, but they thrust it into the, the social dialogue because you know, you had to go out and buy that for your kids. And the kids were seeing it by that time, kids were seeing it as on television. In fact, Barbie was one of the first toys that had a a very strong television commercial presence. And so suddenly these issues that were out there, but seemed a little bit like outliers at the time, suddenly became, well, even your kids were playing with that kind of toy. One of the things that is really no longer an outlier in our society 
and I'm going to emphasize the word out here, like if we can imagine putting out into italics, because there's sort of a, a pun here. You know, in the new Barbie movie, there's plenty of gay coding, particularly in the character of Alan, who's played by Michael Sarah. But Barbie as a brand, as a doll, has yet to have explicitly queer friends, which I really find interesting because the overwhelming majority of Americans at this point say they have a gay family member, a friend or a colleague. And so here's a case where Mattel is quite considerably behind what is actually happening in the world. It's been resistant to make that explicit in Barbie, although it's always been implicit. I mean, my kids were always gay. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're absolutely right. They've been very careful with that. And I think straddling the line of wanting to be progressive, but being careful not to alienate any aspect of their market. Um, They don't want to enter, they want to be progressive. They want to try new things. Um, But they, and they respond strongly to criticism, uh, particularly criticism from uh, mothers who respond to some of their experiments. But they've been very careful in in terms of not uh, going forward with exactly those kinds of um, portrayals of personalities and characters uh, that you mentioned. And it's, it's interesting because it's, uh, the market is very ripe for that right now. So it'll be interesting to see if and how Mattel does embrace that market. To that end of this idea of straddling, you know, this space between wanting to be progressive and wanting to reflect society, you know, but not wanting to get too head far ahead of things. I, I was really fascinated by what I read in your study that the heavily tattooed Barbie did not go well. About a third of Americans have ink on their bodies, but Mattel releases this and then gets some criticism and stopped the line. What? And it actually even impacted some of the other lines of their toys as well. What do you think was up with that? Absolutely. Um, they were They were trying to continue to capture a broad market because in the 80s, um, the average age for playing with Barbies ranged from three years old to 12 years old. By the 90s, that got smaller to from three years old to eight years old. And as, as evidenced in the Barbie movie, um, the, the girls there were saying that they hadn't played with Barbies since they were five years old. So um, they're, still trying, they're still trying to capture a real broad market there. So they tried some things. But yeah, when the tattoo Barbie came out and had such strong opposition, they they pulled that back, and they also pulled back. They removed the um, some of the dolls that they were going to put out that had no studs or um, more exaggerated features. So they were trying to be very careful. They know that they can't alienate moms too much. So that's kind of because moms are the ones going to um, purchase. Moms and grandmas are going to purchase these uh, toys for for the children, and so they. That's, I think, why they walk a very careful line. What do you want Barbie to be right now and in the future for kids and adults alike? Yeah, I mean, that's the essence. I I, I really still want Barbie to be for 
everybody, to have something for everybody. So I hope that Mattel continues to be progressive, uh, to embrace um, the way our society is changing and um, still appeal to, you know, the nostalgia of the collector who said, oh, that's the first Barbie I had. Uh, but also um, to not be afraid to take some risks, to move forward. Um, to, because again, the point of sort of Barbie play is, is a lot of projection, is a lot of sort of trying out roles and uh, trying out scenarios. And so I think that's important. And I think that, um, again, where it's moved in terms of the doll play to a younger um, a younger age group, I'm not sure that that middle ground is completely gone. And I'm not sure that they don't think about it a little bit. And particularly, again, when it's revived with something like the Barbie movie, which, you know, is it's still okay. That's a little cooler than, you know, getting a Barbie doll actually and playing. That's Donna Roberts. She's the associate dean for faculty and a professor in the College of Arts and Sciences at Embry-Riddle University and the author of The Economics of Barbie, Marketing the Evolution of an Icon Through the Generations. Donna Roberts, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and talking about this great subject. A little quick trivia before we go. One of our former undisciplined hosts, Nalini Nedkarni, was actually the model for Mattel's treetop Barbie. You can listen to Nalini's episodes of Undisciplined at upr.org. And while you're there, don't forget to click on the donate button. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30 and KCPW at 10 on Thursdays at noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussauds. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.